Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, so the first few chapters, we're going to dive right in because there's some heavy stuff today. Um, the first few chapters were St. Paul commenting on disunity. Um, we talked about the different ways that he was pointing it out and, and his, his constant begging for them and that the way of, of, of unity um, is through the cross is what, is what we were discussing. Now in this section, which is chapters five through seven, we're not going to do five through seven, we're going to do five and six because seven is pretty heavy on its own. Um, St. Paul is actually talking about them having unity actually in these things, but unity in a totally wrong way, um, but unity in, 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 in doing the wrong thing, which I think is, is as relevant today as it was then. I'm saying First Corinthians like is so, 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 so relevant. Um, so we'll dive into it. So we'll read five and six in a row and then we'll go through and break it, um, break it up. And, and if you can have in the back of your mind for this is that St. Paul is talking about this balance in our Christian life between cruciform living now um, and the expectation we have while living for the second coming, um, which is still that tension that we're living in right now. Um, so without further ado, uh, St. Paul. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, and happy feast of St. Paul, guys, from yesterday. It is actually reported, and he's saying this with a tone of surprise, it's actually reported that there's immorality among you and of a kind that is not found even among pagans. For a man is living with Greek having his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But rather I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or robber, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Drive out the wicked person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against a brother, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? If then you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who are least esteemed by the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no man among you wise enough to decide between members of the brotherhood? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud and that even your own brethren? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raises the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Whereas it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The grace of God the Father be with you all. Amen. Okay. So, some heavy stuff, and as you can see, um, St. Paul is not very happy, um, as we talked about before. So, we will dive um, right into this. So I'm not going to read chapter 5. I'm going to go just go through it. So in chapter 5, what we're talking about is St. Paul starts by saying that one of the believers, the Greek saying is having, what some of your translations might have is that um, he's living with. Um, and the Greek is having because it's very explicit that what this man is doing is actually having sex with his mother-in-law. And so he's calling out this guy and he's, he's not just calling them out. He's saying to them, here's some guy, some dude from your congregation is sleeping with his mother-in-law. This is incest. And he's saying, not even, not even the pagans are okay with that. Okay, because he's not just saying that because actually in Roman law, right, the pagan law, and by the Jewish law, that kind of person was worthy of cursing or death. So he's saying, so even the pagans would put to death somebody who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. And then you guys are going beyond these pagan practices by letting this guy do this. And he says, and you're arrogant about it. You're inflated with pride is what the, is what the Greek means. He's saying that you're not only letting this happen, but you're like boasting it. Um, in, in contemporary language, like what is wrong with you people? 
Okay, and that's why four times in this chapter, verse chapter five, verse two, five, seven, and thirteen, four times he says, "Get this guy out of here." And so he's saying that this man's behavior is a betrayal of his identity in Christ. And that anybody who lives this way is guilty of the same. No matter what their verbal confession is, no matter whether somebody is proclaiming to be a member of the church, claiming to be a brother or a sister in the community, he's saying, can I point out to you that anybody, no matter what they're saying, whether they're, they're idolaters or immoral, immoral or sexually perverted, he says, or drunk or robbers, he's saying none of these, no matter whether they are calling themselves Christians or not, are inheritors of the kingdom if this is how that they live. And so then he says something that all people misunderstand because it sounds super tough because it is tough. He says, such a one, deliver him to Satan. But he says, deliver him to Satan so that he might be saved. So what does he mean when he says deliver him to Satan? Remember what our Lord says, the prince of this world who has nothing in me. Delivering him to Satan is saying, cast him out of the church and deliver him to secular society. Deliver him to outside of the church, because outside of the church, Satan has a rule. So he's not saying, I pray that Satan has his way with him, right? He's saying, give him out, give him, give him a separation from the church. Basically, excommunicate this guy with the hope of his salvation. Good news for any of you who ends up reading Second Corinthians, he comes back. But um, what he's saying is that if you don't want to live according to the kingdom then don't, then don't, and don't pretend to be in the kingdom. This is language I think that's very uncomfortable for us today, right? This is scary stuff. Because what St. Paul is saying is that membership in the community means something. That there is a code of conduct. Satan rules over the world, but not over the church. And Paul is saying, kick him out. So excommunication is a real thing. It's a real thing. We don't like it today, but it's a real thing. And it can and should be used for salvation. For the salvation of all involved. Today, people would say that you're judgmental if you say that. And I'm just, I'm trying to provoke questions to ask whether or not we're consistent because I'm, I'm the consistency police, even though I'm inconsistent myself, but that's okay, um, is to say that, would you say, would you say that it's judgmental if a lawyer was disbarred for breaking the law or a legal code of ethics? Or would you say serves him right? Would you say it was judgmental if a teacher was kicked out for abusing a student? There's people calling out someone for a priest for sexual, potential sexual abuse. I don't know the details. I don't know. But everyone's saying that guy should be kicked out. That guy shouldn't be a priest. That guy shouldn't be this, that, and other thing. So then, how are we okay with not being kicked out of the community when we break the Christian code of ethics. Because if, if people are supposed to look at the church and see the kingdom of heaven, and they don't, is it wrong? Is it wrong if the apostles 
use their apostolic authority, which are the bishops, and to some extent the priests, to enforce the code of ethics. I think we're inconsistent in our values. I think we're very inconsistent in our values, myself included, right? I, I would hesitate to do such a thing, but I don't know if my reasons why are good, to be quite honest. There's a very big difference between judging a person and protecting. But there's something more to this scenario because Paul's not saying because he sins, let's kick him out. That's not what St. Paul is saying. This person was clearly flaunting what he did. This guy was openly living with and having sexual relationships with his mother-in-law. And their spirit of toleration is what was going on. So public sins, public sins are very different from private ones. And there needs to be a call for discernment and how to deal with one um, or the other, right? And so that's for the pastors to deal with. So I'm not gonna get into a, a whole long thing about how should pastors deal with public versus private, but to, to us as members of the community, do you think about how your public sins affect the community? Do you think about that? Do you think about how, how public behaviors affect the community? Like receptions, how you behave at wedding receptions. I've been to wedding receptions that made me not ever want to go to wedding receptions because I was scandalized. And I'm not a saint. Um, dances. When you go to dances, um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about whether these things are good or bad, right or wrong. I'm talking about how do you conduct yourself as a Christian at these things. Alcohol. Are you known to get plastered or wasted or totally trashed? And you post those on your Instagram or your Facebook or your Twitter or whatever social media thing is the cool thing right now. Do you do that? Or do you say, as we're going to run into in the next chapter, all things are lawful, right? I, I, I can do whatever I want. I have the spirit of freedom because you do have a spirit of freedom. You do. So the attitude of flaunting, right? So I, I'm, I'm thinking of, a, of an incident where some servant told off a youth about a particular social behavior that the person was doing. And so the youth in retaliation went and did it on purpose and then posted it to Facebook, which I have to say was a little bit comedic. I, I did laugh at it. Um, but there's something to what the servant was saying, right? As much as today, everybody would yell at the servant, not the youth, and say, who do you think you are telling them what to do? Actually, I might argue that the servant might have been more consistent with the faith than those of us who were calling them out. But this attitude of flaunting, right? The youth putting it online and saying, ha, 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 I can. Catch me if you can. Is exactly what St. Paul is calling out. He's saying that their spirit of toleration is not just tolerant. They are proud. They're proud of this. They're actually showing off that we're okay with this. We're sophisticated. Right? Because remember that one of the issues of the Corinthians is this sense of, of sophistry. And what St. Paul is saying, you should be upset. 
You should be mournful. You should be penitent that this is happening because you're abusing the spirit of freedom and you're acting, and it's an act, like it has no impact on the relationship with God. It's like those today, for example, who think they can have an open relationship. Right? I can have friends with benefit. I can have an open marriage because I'm so secure in my marriage that I'm not afraid of what this, this mere physical act of sex means to others. Me and my spouse, we're above that now. We understand that this is just a physical expression. I actually heard a couple talking about how because one of the members of the relationship travels a lot, that he feels totally secure with the spouse and himself having sexual relationships with other people during the travels because we all have our needs, right? And to them, this was a sense of deep um, sophistication, right? That we're not, we're, not, we're not bound by this physicality that you guys are. We're, we're beyond that. This, this, this language that St. Paul's talking about, remember that to be Corinthianized is, is, is what it means, I think, today to be a Westerner. Right, And so these, these are the exact same issues that we have today, where when someone talks about sex, for example, before marriage, we're going to get into that in chapter six, where they'll say things like, this is just a physical expression of affection. And so if you're in the dark ages and you think that this is some sacred thing, that's for you. But for me, I understand what it really is. These are exactly the kind of people that St. Paul is talking about. So... St. Paul says, you, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? So a little bit of yeast blows up the whole lagina, the whole lump of, of, of dough, okay? And this unleavened bread analogy is, to, this is almost like St. Paul's uh, equivalent of, it just takes one bad apple, right, is what he's saying. But it has a deeper meaning for them because the leaven analogy is not just showing the spread of impurity physically, but he's connecting it to what he said, Christ is our Paschal Lamb, who has been sacrificed. So the believers, okay, that Paul's suggesting and reflecting on Christ's death, live in a permanent state of Passover. And during Passover, they'd only eat unleavened bread, right? So he's, he's, his analogy has got a double, a double entendre, if, if you will. And so this leaven, the leaven to be removed for the proper ongoing communal celebration of Christ's death is malice and evil, okay? So he's saying that you're supposed to be this Paschal lamb. You're not supposed to be leavened, right? So he's saying, get rid of this. So St. Paul takes it further, and again, based on Leviticus and Deuteronomy, as saying, you should not be associating with evil. This is tough. He's saying, you should not be associating with evil. And he makes reference to a previous letter that he sends. That's how we know 1 Corinthians isn't really 1 Corinthians. It might be second or third, but it's definitely not first. It's first Corinthians to us because of what survived. But he references his first letter and says, I told you not to associate with evildoers. And he goes, it's clear that you guys thought I meant outside the church. He goes, I'm not talking about outside the church. He goes, if I were telling you to not associate with evildoers outside of the church, you would have to be pulled out of this world. <laughs> That's not going to happen. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about inside the church. I'm talking to you guys about inside of the church. Do not associate with anyone doing evil. And that is tough. I think today, most of us would cringe. We would cringe at that. Think about what would be your, your reaction 
if a board member is known to abuse people, think of what that would look like for the church to not cut that person off, to not do something about it. What would you think if you knew that a board member is known to abuse people, even his wife or her husband, not necessarily even another family, but within their own house? Think about whether or not you become aware that a servant is known to have sexually abused someone. And St. Paul is saying, is that the kind of image you want to flaunt? What he's saying is so reasonable, even though we would all be like, wow, what a jerk. I can't believe he said that. I thought the church was supposed to be where we're so tolerant, where we love everybody and we judge nobody. And we're just all so nice and we sing Kumbaya and Jesus is our teddy bear, right? That's how we like to, to, to portray everything. But then what do you do when somebody is doing a public sin? St. Paul is saying you should have nothing to do with them saying you should have nothing to do with them because if not, what you're doing is reinforcing this image as though you are endorsing it, right? It is the church herself that is actually saying this is wrong and this warrants some kind of repercussions because the church will not be able to instill trust in anybody when we are promoting evil. And we're going to get to lawsuits because he's saying, what's wrong with you if you can't deal with your internal issues? Something's seriously wrong with you if you can't do that. And he didn't say don't commune those within the community who do sin. He said don't commune the guy who's flaunting his public sin living with his mother-in-law. But these other group of people, he didn't say anything about actually. He said don't put up to the public profile these images. And that's wisdom. Imagine, I don't know how many of you guys have heard of the Innocence Project. If you haven't, they're, they're actually amazing. Okay, so there's, every state has an Innocence Project. And what they do is that they look through people who are possibly wrongly accused of crimes, wrongly imprisoned. Um, and they're a nonprofit to try and help these people um, find justice for themselves. Now imagine if the Innocence Project was led by somebody who was properly convicted for a crime. Would you have faith in an organization headed by someone like that? Or that one of their poster boys is someone that's for real guilty of a crime, right? That's not what it is. And that's what St. Paul is saying. You lose all credibility. So you can't allow this in the church is what he's saying. And that's, that's wisdom. But here is a major message of this chapter. Communal holiness is a thing. The church is not the one holy Catholic apostolic church if we are not catholically holy. Catholic meaning universal. If the individual members do not practice holiness, then the church is not universally holy. And consequently, the witness to the world becomes unreal. And it becomes totally theoretical and having no living manifestation. And that is why Christ said, there's only one way that they're going to know that you're mine. When you have love 
when you're one. That's why this message is even more bank in Corinthians about oneness. Unity was the dying prayer of our Lord. How many people do you know that left the church because of some wrong that they saw or heard? Just think about it. How many times have you, forget someone else, how many times have you had doubt in the church or in the faith or in God because of wrongs that you saw or heard about? I have, right? And that's why St. Paul's saying, so, so how are you okay with doing whatever you want and forgetting how that impacts people? You have a personal responsibility to the body of Christ. That's something that I think we really take for granted. Every single one of us has a duty to the whole body of Christ, and we're going to get more into that in chapter 6. The body being not only the Eucharist physically, by that I mean the body and the blood that we partake of in liturgy, but I actually mean to the whole Eucharist communion, the whole people of God. You owe that to everybody. Your health affects everyone. And this is going to come up a lot in this letter. And everyone's health affects you. Imagine if Abuna at your church is miserable all the time. Isn't that going to affect you? Isn't that going to affect the service? Isn't that going to affect the mood of the church? If Abuna is obsessed with money, doesn't that also affect you in the service? Where you'll question the motive of every decision? You're going to question why something's not happening and wonder if it's because Abuna wants a better car or a bigger house or more kids or more vacation time? Now forget Abuna for a second. Now think about those in your closest circle. Those in your closest circle of friends, do they also not affect you? Their moods, their ambitions, their desires, their will... Of course they do. If they don't, then you're not really friends, no offense. We have duties one to another. Chapter six. When one of you has a grievance against a brother, okay, brother here is like the French, like the go-to pronoun for being anybody is masculine. So anytime that I'm saying brother, we're talking about anyone, any member of the community, okay? One of you has a grievance against a brother. Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Don't you know that saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more matters pertaining to this life? So he's saying the Christian measure of justice is the gospel. That's the Christian measure of justice. And he's saying... Why are you going to secular authorities to figure out your problems? And that's just as relevant, I think, today. Today, we do see Christians suing each other. We see Christians going to divorce court. Right? Those are a thing. We see bad business deals among believers that go really sour and so they take each other to the courts and figure each other out and sue each other's pants off. So I'm not saying you have to go to Abuna specifically for every single 
thing. God knows sometimes people come to me about things that I don't know anything about, whether I, they should get the Ultima or the Corolla, I don't know. Um, it's not, that's not a good question for me. It might have been if I was a car guy, but I'm not a car guy. But discipleship within the community, go to members of the community and ask. Tan Samira, God repose her soul, a blessed memory from California. She's come up a lot. Those of you who have um, know Bunokros Ibrahim or have read like a blog or two that have written about her, know Tan Samira. Tan Samira is a living saint of our time. Okay, Tan Samira was a lay woman married to an American guy who happened to see Pope Corliss like every day for the last two years of her life. But the woman before she was even seeing Pope Corliss was a rock star spiritually. Okay, this is a woman who was up every day at four o'clock in the morning reading the whole, praying the whole Egbeya and then reading for hours of the Bible, then sleeping for a few hours. And what did she do all day long? Fix people's problems. This is this old tongue that was fixing people's marriages. She was actually the marriage lady. We had a marriage issue. It was like, oh, please talk to Tan Samir. Right? That it's not, I'm now not just talking about Ibn. I'm saying that when there's holiness in the community, and I'm intentionally bringing up a woman, because I want to make it clear, this is not about just um, um, Abuna to do this. I know another person, a lay person, um, one of the youth actually that confesses to me is father. I won't, I won't allude to who he is on here because someone might know him. This guy runs a car dealership, a used car dealership, and the guy is everybody's go-to when they're having marriage conflict. No one, no one in the community would know that. When they're having marriage conflicts, if there are parents that are worried about their kids because they don't have to deal with their own, their, own, their own children, I don't mean that sarcastically, they're calling this guy. Why? Because he's clearly, visibly living what, what the gospel says. And so he becomes, the charism becomes evident in him. Right? I know another lay servant, young guy, actually my age, who has gone to strip to, to bars to rescue strippers. I was saying, come here. We'll, we'll support you. Get out of this life and take care of your child that you had out of wedlock. This isn't okay for you. And Paul's saying that's what the community is supposed to look like. But instead, he's saying, because none of you live it, because none of you are practicing it, none of you are doing anything, now you're going to secular society, the realm of Satan that we just talked about, where people have the completely different morals of you and you're asking them to judge your situation. God raises up witnesses to himself if we but want it. We've sold, in my view, our birthright for less than lentils. Right? Esau sold his for, for lentils. We're, ours is less. We take for granted the strength of the gospel and instead we run to secular authorities for everything. And that's why Christians run into big problems when they build everything around the law. Because then when the law disagrees with them, they don't know what to say anymore because they forgot what the gospel was. The gospel promotes denial. The world promotes yourself. They are opposing gospels. With respect to his judging angels part, because a lot of people wonder what does he mean when he says, don't you know that you'll judge angels? There was a Jewish um, uh, apocalyptic belief. Um, it was a local belief in the culture, which shows how very Jewish St. Paul was, as we talked about in the intro we did about him in, in Romans. 
Um, and so St. Paul is alluding to this, that, the, that humans would assist God on judgment day. Um, and so th they would participate in judging the holy, the righteous. And so St. Paul is saying, if you're supposed to assist God, according to this local tradition, and you don't even know how to do it on earth, he's like, so wh what you planning on doing in the future, buds? That's what he's asking sarcastically. Verse 4, if you then have such cases, then why do you lay them before those who are least esteemed by the church? I say this to your shame. Can it, can it be that there's no man wise among, among you wise enough to decide to know the brotherhood, but instead brother goes against brother, against the law, before the seculars, as we talked about. So anyways, what this section is, is, is he's just expanding on what we have just said. Um, but he says to have lawsuits with one another is a sign of your defeat. What there is speculation about here for those who, who study this academically um, is that there is a speculation that the elite among the Corinthians that we talked about in the intro, the, the, the super hardcore rich people, the sophisticated people, that they were often taking the non-elite to court. And for those of you who know anything about Roman history, usually if you were a man of position, if you were a man of wealth, if you were a man of nobility, if you were well-to-do, justice had more to do with your status than it did to do with truth. And so if an elite person took a non-elite to court, chances were they, they were they were likely gonna win. It's almost like, forgive me for drawing the parallel, but it's a good parallel. It's like putting a black man before a jury of 12 middle-aged white businessmen, right? Where it's just like, how likely is that person gonna really get justice? And so St. Paul is calling them out even more importantly, whether that's the truth or not, we're not really sure. That's some speculation. Um, but St. Paul is now saying, okay, you wise guys, you, you self-proclaimed wise guys, is this wisdom? Is this wisdom? Cruciform justice, cru like cross-shaped, across-demonstrated. Justice is a whole other kind of justice. Cruciform justice, this is why he brings them back to Christ and said Christ crucified, is when you die for each other not when you persecute one another. That's why St. Paul was asking in verse 7, why not suffer wrong? It's like, why not be okay with being with a problem? Think of it within your family. If any of you have never been irritated at your mother or father, then you're a saint. Right? And if no parent here has never been irritated at his son or daughter or her son or daughter, like, God bless you. Okay? Because... He's saying, don't you put up with each other? You can't divorce family. There's still a family. And he's saying, why can't you tolerate wrong from the community, from one another, rather than going to secular authorities to sue each other's pants off? How many times have you thought a Christian shouldn't behave like that? But do you? Do you behave like that? When St. Paul is saying, do you not know, just so you can understand his tone, what he's really saying is, how do you not know, is what he's really saying. So that's what we're about to get into. Verse 9, do you not know, how do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. 
neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, or violers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were baptized, and you were sanctified. And we know that Paul's understanding of baptism from Romans is death and resurrection. He says that explicitly. You were justified, you were made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. So this failure of familial love for Paul begs a fundamental question. He's saying that those of you being unrighteous or unjust, unjustified, unrighteous, are excluded from the kingdom of God. He's saying, don't you realize that even though you're baptized, this behavior makes you excluded? It's not just for an outsider. This is because, like all those things named in this vice list that he's put out, have not been washed or sanctified or justified by God. And so he's saying that your, your baptism is how you become a member of the community of the just. And so you behaving unjustly is the opposite of your baptism. We really need to take our baptism seriously, folks. And so for St. Paul, this kind of behavior is a sign of non-conversion. That there should be a sign of conversion and it's your behavior. And that if you behave this way, you're the exact same as the pagans. And you will not survive the judgment day. And so for a lot of these people in the community, think about these people... Remember, this is a brand new community of Christians. This would have seemed a little bit outrageous to them, what St. Paul just said. Where he's saying, actually, your baptism means absolutely nothing to me right now. And to them, it's like, what do you mean? I got my passport. I'm now justified. It's like, no, no, no. You're, you're the same as though you didn't get baptized. It was tough language. When believers act unjustly, betraying their identity and forsaking the cross then they're engaging in a very dangerous activity. It's an anachronism. It's going against time. Because it reveals them to be more like being pre-Christians than post-baptism. That's what this behavior means. And that's why he says, this is what some of you used to be. You guys used to be all of these lists. And then those of you who have believed the gospel and been baptized have now been made right with God. You're back in a covenant with God. And so you have to show the practice of this justification, of this being made right. And those of you who claim the presence of the Spirit of God must live this countercultural love that he's talking about. That was seen in our Lord, and that is an essential part of leaving idolatry and injustice behind to pursue the love of God and of neighbor. So, Let's dumb this down a little bit. To turn to sin, for all of us, myself included, is to turn away from one's calling. It's to renounce the calling that you have. That's why in the first hour of the Igbeya, every day we pray from the book of Ephesians, we ask him to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we were called, our, our baptism. To turn to the faithless, is a denial of the faith. Why? 
Because when you say, instead of being judged in a community of faithfulness, I'm going to go to secular law, think about what that means. Our generation needs to think a lot more about what things mean. You're saying the standard that I would like to have used to judge me is the standard of disbelief. That's what you're saying. You're saying these people who do not believe in morality, that's what I want to have used to judge me and my brother and my sister. That's messed up. Right? That, that's very, very messed up. You were made right by the Lord, and now you're turning to the unjustified for justification. Imagine if the Jews had an internal theological problem and they said there's only one way to solve this send them to the Christians like it's nonsense but that's what we're doing every single day when we go to the law against our neighbors that's what St. Paul's saying he's saying can you step back and see how dumb what you're doing is that's what he's asking in complete exasperation he's not asking politely and so he's trying to point out your behavior is absurd in particular, he's saying, when you joined this group, you were putting that kind of behavior away. And for you guys, this is what he's saying to them, who are adult converts, you weren't born into this. You chose Christianity, you people of Corinth. If you are not behaving according to your conversion, he's saying, this begs the question, dudes, why are you here? That's an uncomfortable question sometimes, but we should ask it. If you don't believe in this, why are you here? Some people freak out when that question gets asked. Like, no, no, no. Don't put these thoughts in their mind. I'm like, well, it's the truth. Right? It's not a social club. It's not a country club. It's not a golf club. It's not a social league club. It's a club of Christians. Christians believe in something. Do you believe in it or not? If you don't believe in it, cool. You don't need to come. Forgive me. My personal opinion, and I'm not suggesting that once you have any doubt, get out of the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying if you've done the work and you truly do not believe, then you do not need to pretend that you believe. But my personal opinion, I think all Christians have to have multiple conversions. Asking, what are we in the faith for and why? And if so, what does it mean? Because if you don't do this, then the church for you becomes not a community of the faithful. It becomes the cultural community or the community center where justification and salvation are not actually really a big deal to you. They're just the decorations on the building. That's all they are. This next part is so important that we're about to get into so so important saint paul is about to start repeating back a lot of slogans that the corinthians used that he heard from the person who brought him news of the, of the corinthians so a lot of people don't understand these verses properly that he's quoting them so for example when he says all things are lawful to me that's something the corinthians were saying saint paul wasn't saying that of his own self actually to be fair he might have been the one who originally said it, but they were using it now in a completely different way. 
Okay, so St. Paul's going to take some of their slogans, repeat it back at them, and say, no, 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 this is not what it means. But this main issue he's about to tackle here is sexual immorality, porneia, um, which is where the word porn comes from, just as an FYI. Um, and it's not clear um, all of the different things the Corinthians were indulging in. So the slogans... Um, were being used, but they were clearly having sex and, and, and total, like, sexual indulgence. Some people think it's with temple prostitutes. Could have been with normal prostitutes. Um, but they were doing it. That much is clear. And it was clearly a big deal. The problem, beyond just the problem of sleeping with prostitutes and just having sex with everybody you see in general, that, that, that is a problem for Christians, is that they were not only doing this, but they were acting very sophisticated about it and using religious freedom as their justification to pardon the pun. Okay? Um, and that's a problem. Think of, like, this is the same thing that happens today. So we'll read... Verse, one, verse uh, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me. Put that in air quotes, because he's quoting back to them what they would say. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, air quotes, but I will not be enslaved by anything. This part in air quotes, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is what the Corinthians were saying. They're saying bodies are just for food and drink and stuff. that They have nothing to do with God. And St. Paul says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We're going to get into what that means in the nitty-gritty in a second. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I therefore take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Don't you know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Saying, don't you know that anybody who has sex with a prostitute becomes married to her? That's what that means. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So marital relationships in the Old Testament, sex equaled marriage. Once you had sex, you were married. Some people's solution was, let's marry a lot of people. Um, and God eventually said, no, that's, that's not what we're trying to do here, folks. But he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Shun immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. Okay. So there seems to be two parallel arguments in the structure that I just want to go over quickly before we get into the nitty-gritty. Where you got these slogans and counter-slogans and theological corrections and claims that St. Paul is doing here. Okay? So, the Corinthian slogans are all things are lawful for me. St. Paul's counter slogan later on in the chapter is, every sin that a person commits is outside the body. Um, 
the Corinthian slogan was food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul counters all those slogans with not all things are beneficial. So his slogan in response to all things are lawful is saying, no, not all things are beneficial. His counter to um, that slogan is I won't be dominated by anything else. His counter for the uh, food is for the body and the body for food is the body is meant not for sexual immorality for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So when they're saying food for the body, body for food, he's saying, nope, Lord for the body, body for the Lord. He's very intentional just because we don't always catch in that language when we're, when we're reading him. Okay. When they're saying God will destroy both one and the other, he's like, body's going to die. Food's going to die. Paul's responding with his own slogan of God raised the Lord and the Lord raises us. Okay, so he's, he's countering. He's sharp. St. Paul's a sharp guy. Um, be careful of short people. They're very smart. St. Paul was short. Um, and he's talking about how the sexually immoral are sinning against their own bodies. And we're going to get into that. And then he makes his corrections. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? So you're part of the body of the Lord. And are you now going to take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Rhetorical. Um, I'm going to flee. I'm going to, I'm going to skip this part and, and get into the, the, the thing. So these slogans, as we said, these slogans were from the Corinthians. They were totally libertarian, being so-called free in the spirit because they're so sophisticated. So they're saying all things are legal, or in modern language, I have the right to do anything. And Paul agrees. Paul agrees. He's like, yeah, actually you can. You can do whatever you want. But what you do must be beneficial. And in using the word beneficial, because Paul is not a relativist, that's referring to a standard. There's a judgment. There's a, there's a measuring line to determine something good and bad. We'll get to that. And to myself and others. The others part is coming later on in this chapter where he adds that, saying for the building up. Okay? And he adds, you also can't be enslaved to that thing. So this is a really important slogan that I think some people live by today. My weed is your coffee. I've heard that one a lot, right? Um, I know my limits, and just because you um, aren't able to control yourself doesn't mean that it's wrong for me to do X, Y, and Z. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient or beneficial, and I will not be enslaved to all things. This requires a realness on our part. Is going to a club intrinsically wrong? No. Is going out to a restaurant, physically going out to a restaurant with someone of the opposite sex, intrinsically wrong is eating meat intrinsically wrong is drinking alcohol intrinsically wrong no they are not 
But you need to now ask yourself what the standard that St. Paul is putting when he says, yes, you can do whatever you want. Yes, we can, as Obama said. But is it beneficial? With the measure of beneficial? To you and to others. The other comes, as we said, in chapter 10, verse 23. And three, so number one, is it beneficial? Number two, is it beneficial both to you and others? Number three, yet you're not enslaved to it. So then you need to ask all those things. Does it reign over your thoughts? Are you constantly thinking, I need to do this, I need to do this, I want to do this, I have to do this? Because if so, I'm sorry, you are enslaved by it. If you're not able to rest until the thing is done, you're enslaved. Are you not satisfied until you've done it? Then you're enslaved. After you've done it, are you craving it more? You're enslaved. Does it affect your relationship negatively with yourself, God, or others? And it's not beneficial. Is it something that you, can, that you say openly or quietly? So we have these, no, I'll give up everything, but this is the one thing I will not stop doing. Right? They can take away this and this and this, but I'm doing this. It's a sign of your enslavement. Honesty is very rare. Honesty is very, very, very rare. We like to act like we're totally okay. But are we? And the strong person, the bold person, the courageous person is the one who says, I can't do that. I can't. Even though someone else might be able to. I'm sorry, if I'm at a club and everybody's grinding up against each other to really seductive music that I actually might even like, if I'm going to be totally honest, I don't think I'm going to be praying Jesus' prayer. I don't think I'm going to be looking at everybody in the club as my dear brother and sister in Christ who I would like to protect in the Lord. Yeah, right. Like, that's, yeah, get real. Maybe there's somebody at the club who doesn't think that way. Good for them. But I'm not them. So it's not a matter of judgment of everyone else who's there. It's about self-knowledge of oneself. Is it right for me? Is it good? Is it lawful? Is it expedient? And the beneficial, the standard of it is the image and likeness of God. I can't claim to do something that's against the gospel and, and pretend that it's lawful. It's not lawful. So that's the general concept. But then he brings it in to talk specifically about sex because of their problems. Right? Because here they are going around prostituting themselves. Whether the temple people or not doesn't matter. Corinthians are trying to posit. This is the argument the Corinthians are trying to make. Corinthians are trying to say... This is the first point they're making, that since the body will be destroyed eventually, so this is the argument, this is how they're justifying the behavior. Since the body is going to decay anyway, it's going to be destroyed. What's the big deal of sexual indulgence? Sex to me is like food. It's just a physical need that gets done and that's all there is to it. And since the body dies, خلاص, what's your problem? That's what the Corinthians are using to justify it. And Paul is answering, saying, uh, no folks, what you're doing is sexual immorality. He's calling it what it is. Um, that this culture being Corinthianized is exactly what this culture is. And he's saying, uh, no, what you're doing is not just eating. What you're doing is perverting 
a real function. That's not the same as eating, right? I mean, like, that's more like trying to shove food up your nostrils, okay? Like, like that, that's not what the nostrils are for, right? You've, you've perverted a natural function, okay? Or trying to drink through your lungs. We've all had that burn before, okay, when we aspirate. And they're saying that the body is for physicality. That's its point. So no big deal. What's the big deal about having sex? Sound familiar? And he's saying there are both moral and spiritual consequences to bodily acts. He's saying, first of all, first of all, you're trying to separate body from spirit. That's not okay. The two are affected by one another. It's an important point that we sometimes forget. It's also saying... No, you're wrong. The body is actually not made for food and drink. You're wrong. So if this is your argument, that the body is made for physicality, the body is made for sex, the body is made for food, he's saying that's not true. The body is made for the Lord. Because you didn't make your own body. There was a creation at some point. And the Lord for the body, because the Lord took on flesh. And to make this point clear, he says, okay, so you're arguing, first of all, that the body's for, the, for, for food. He's like, no, it's not, number one. Number two, they said, and it's my body. And he's saying, no, it's not. It's not your body. The believers are a member of Christ's body. And then he draws on scripture and says, and not just scripture, because the pagans saw this to some extent too, sex is what makes people one flesh. Sex equals marriage. That's why for them that was marriage. So he's saying, so when you unite your body with a prostitute, or with anybody, you're subverting not only a physical union of you to your spouse or to anybody, but also a spiritual one. Because you are united with Christ, and Christ is united to the believer. And so actually, you are breaking your marriage bonds to God because it's not your body. Because you are married to a human, you are also married to Christ. Body and spirit are not separate. His second point is, in response to them saying, and the body is going to rot anyway, He's saying, no, it's not. Like, I, like, forgive my language here. It's almost like St. Paul wants to call them really stupid. Um, that's being, being polite from what he really wants to say. Um, your body is not just going to rot and decay. It will resurrect. So in life or in death. So, like, so even if you don't buy any of this business about being united to Christ, which you should if you're a Christian. Sorry, bros. Um, actually, there is going to be a resurrection. So you're going to have a bodily relationship with God, with your body, not some random fluffy spirit language in like the avatar world. No, you're going to have a real body, okay, that is both here and in the parousia and the second coming, the manifestation of our Lord going to be united to God. And even if you want to pretend like it's not a big deal here, which you'd be stupid if you do, but even if you do, there will be a resurrection. You're going to be united to God. So whether you do it here or now, your body is a big deal because the body is where your spirituality is expressed. 
Your body is for the Lord. It is not yours. How do you not know, he asks, that your body is the temple of the Lord? God himself dwells in you. We sometimes think about Christianity as being about one part of the person, the spirit. But a person is body, soul, and spirit. Christianity is about the whole person, and God is about the whole person because God assumed a whole, full person. God didn't leave out any part of the human. God took on humanity in its entirety. Body, soul, and spirit. In fact, the early church saw it as heresy when anyone suggested that, that, that the Lord incarnate lacked any natural component of humanity. Our bodies are holy. Our bodies are not bad. They are good and they are important. A lot of confusion that people have in the faith is what to do about their bodies. It's a big struggle, I think, for our generation, especially in a hypersexualized world, because we tend to think our, ba- our bodies don't matter or that we should be ashamed of them or even that they're just a thing to be fought, that that's all the body's there for, it's just to fight it. No. That's dualism, and we're not dualists. So in a nutshell, if we're in a relationship with the Lord and the body is made for something because we're created... So if you understand that you're created, then you need to understand, okay, then something that's created has intention, has meaning. Then sexual immorality, if the body is made for the Lord, what St. Paul is saying is very deep, and I think it's lost on us. It's totally lost on us. St. Paul is saying sexual immorality is to go against the very purpose of your existence, That's why it's a big deal. Because you are united to God, which was true in Eden and is true post-baptism. We're united with God. We are married to God. And any kind of immorality is not just a sin. It's an existential crisis. It's it's, it's heavy, right? St. Paul is, he's brilliant. Like, God raise up a Paul for us in this time. What the Corinthians are also saying, we're almost done, don't worry, is that sin doesn't involve, sorry, the Corinthians are saying, is that sin doesn't involve the body. They're trying to view sin as just a spiritual thing. And consequently, they're saying no bodily activity is sinful, and that's why they can do whatever they like. And so Paul is taking it further to say, actually, all sins, all of them, not just sexual morality, are against the body. Because the body is associated with God. Pay close attention to this part here because it's a little bit complicated. One's body is God's temple, filled with the Spirit, capital S Spirit. Consequently, It is not just one's own. Your body does not belong to you. Stay with me. Why? St. Paul is saying the cross, that's why we're calling this the cruciform life of love. 
the cross purchased the believer. It was the redeeming of the, of, of the human from the bondage of sin. Sin was our old master, as we talked about in Romans. The cross liberated us from that old master and made us slaves in the Roman sense of finding our meaning in, not in terms of contemporary concept of slavery, God himself. And so in accepting the purchase of Christ, I give my life to God's ownership. And consequently, this body is not mine. And so when I sin, I am not just sinning against myself. And St. Paul takes this further to say you're sinning in a much bigger way. Actually, I'm going to come back to that. So the cross purchased the believer, like the redemption of a slave, and the purchased person belongs not to himself, but to one who redeems. So fleeing sin is important in the negative sense of avoiding immorality. But it also has a positive sense because of our purchase. It's to glorify God in that we are beautifying the temple. That's why the language of the Desert Fathers when talking about virtue is saying this is the decoration of your soul. It's the decoration of your body. It's like spiritual makeup. That's, that's what virtue is. But this part here, this is an important theology. Okay, so bear with me again. Paul is saying that the individual and the community are God's temple. Salvation means that the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, is incorporated into the one body of Christ. What does this mean? The individual body is God's. The Corinthians as a whole are God's body. And they are God's because of Christ's death. Why does this matter in the context of this whole letter and this chapter? St. Paul is saying that you Corinthians who are walking around sleeping with everything that moves and has two legs and breathes. All of you people are going around sinning like it's nothing and making all these claims. You're not just sinning against your own body. You're sinning against the whole community. You are diseasing the whole community. And you are going against God. Your sin is not a private matter. That's heavy. The point of spirituality is your body. The place of action is your body. Your body matters. Redemption includes your body and the whole body of Christ. So the Lord of the body is God, not you. My body, my choice. There's a modern slogan for you. St. Paul would have vomited. Sorry. <laughs> Saying, no, it's not. It's not your body. And it's not your choice. You, you have agency. You can make that choice. 
But it's not supposed to be this way. Paul is saying to us, as much as the Corinthians, choose your master. Just choose. Sin or God. That's your choice. That's where you have agency. But to wrap this all up, he's saying to the Corinthians, you made a choice to enter this community. So act like it. And if you don't, kindly leave. It's tough language. How would your life or my life look different if we were to every day realize that the body that we received is a gift and that it had an intention? How different would our choices look? How different would our reasoning look? How different would, be, would, would our, our list of things to ask before we make a decision look if this was how we thought about everything we do? Our body is not made for food and the food for the body. The body is made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And the Lord himself will raise us up in the last day. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Um, any uh, questions uh, can be thrown into the chat box over here. Um, I think there's one or two that came in. Um, when you were talking about not associating with anyone evil and not endorsing it publicly, where does that fall in supporting our sisters and brothers in Christ and standing up for what's right? That's a great question. So what I'm, what I'm not saying, and I don't think what St. Paul is saying, and I don't want to speak for St. Paul here because I'm not really sure, is, is to say, my friend sins, therefore I cut them off because you sin and I sin. Okay, but the issue is when we flaunt sin. So I'm going to just get really, really real. If you're socializing as a group is to go out to do shisha, right, or to go to hookah lounge. That's the kind of behavior he's talking about. You're, you're publicly flaunting a behavior and people today think it's no big deal and they post it all over social media like it's like it's nothing. Right. Or, for example, when a guy shows off to his friends, I don't know what girls do because I'm not a girl, um, but when, when guys would show off being like, yeah, man, I've got like three different girls lined up. I'm, I've got, I'm talking to all, all of them right now. I'm just trying to figure out which one I like the most. Okay, no, that's messed up. And so when we're acting like that's okay, no, it's not okay. Right? I was actually having a discussion with some of, some, of, some of the guys here in Ottawa last night and asking the question of where's, where's the line for calling one another out? Because I think most people, most people, if they knew that their friend was cheating on their spouse, would confront them. I think most people would. But they wouldn't for minor, quote-unquote, things. And the question becomes, how did you decide what's minor and major? And I'm not suggesting an answer. I, I, I'm, um, and I'm not saying to be the truth police and like walk around with a baseball bat, like thumping people who make mistakes. What I'm, what I'm suggesting is, is your behavior showing consent? Is your behavior showing consent? Because you can show disconsent without being the truth police and, 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 and a jerk. Right? For example, if your group is gossiping, you can choose not to participate 
you can try and change the subject. And depending on your personality, you might even be able to say something like, guys, I feel really uncomfortable talking about someone when they're not here. Or you can be less passive aggressive if that's how that's perceived. I don't think it is. I think that's very fair and honest to say because it's the truth. But you could even say, guys, you guys might be able to have this conversation about judging whenever I hear anything about this person, I get riled up towards that person and I'd rather not hear it because I will judge them. Right? If you're listening to music together in the car and I'm going to date myself here and it's Akon and you already know I want to blank you, Love was the radio version. That's not what the unedited version is. I was saying, I don't really want to listen to this. Right? Like, there's different ways. There's different ways. What St. Paul is talking about is, here's some guy in the congregation flaunting living with his mother-in-law. And everyone's like, cool, yeah, no problem. We're, we're like that here. We're, we're an accepting community. We don't judge one another. This is a safe zone. That's what he's, he's, he's speaking out against. I hope that clarifies. Um, actually, uh, so somebody's saying, uh, is this why in the early church they had to confess their sins to the whole congregation? I was going to bring that up. Yes. The reason for bringing up your sins in front of the whole congregation of the early church was not actually to shame people. It, it was a direct consequence of their proper theology that a diseased member diseases the whole. That the behavior of the one is the behavior of the whole. And therefore, any, any sin that you did wasn't against yourself, but the whole community. Um, and we're going to get more into it in Corinthians, actually. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna really come back to this body concept. And that's why I didn't want to um, kill it to death right now. Um, but this one body analogy is, is huge. Yes, absolutely. Uh, to that person, that is why. Um, I don't know if there's any questions online, because that's all that came to me. Um, in the chat oh here's one um is not going to a club to save strippers uh, could drag someone's feet to sin and does the other way around i was watching a video for a prostitute that came back to christ one of her videos she went to visit her friends who are still doing porn is not better to cut ties completely or those are assigned to such ministry are protected by the holy spirit the key here is to not presume yourself to be that person like each of us should have discipleship because to each a measure as a, as a gift. The person, for example, that I know that did that um, was instructed to, but I'll, I'll add on to this. I just don't want to overly expose what they did. That person took his wife um, and did it in a particular way. However, that person was very much guided in what that person did. And I'm not trying to talk about whether he did it as right or not right. What I'm trying to get at is like God sends. So you shouldn't use yourself as the standard of how another person should serve. The gospel is the standard and each person should do, that's why I was talking about honesty earlier. I couldn't go into the club and do that. I doubt it. Like personally, um, and not because I'm afraid to be seen there, but I'm afraid of what I might do there personally, <laughs> right? That I'm just like, oh, this is good music. I might just chill. Um, but there's, there's to each according to the gift that he or she has received from the spirit, which he's going to talk about like with the different gifts. Um, and so, for example, I might not be the gifted person to go into that situation, but another person is. But I might be able to be the person, so for example, to take it away from the, from the club. There's a person who knows how to dialogue with atheists because they've already been through everything themselves and they're not affected by it. And there's another person who, once they start talking, freaks out and gets afraid and, and it becomes a warfare for themselves. Okay. 
not the right person to have that, that conversation, but another person might be. So each one according to the gift as given by the Spirit and through guidance, right? Because we can be overconfident sometimes in a gift that we have. It might be a real gift, but we might be overconfident in that gift and its expression. And so we do need um, someone to, um, to help us. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.